I believe with all of my heart when people say, keep coming back, it works if you work it. That is absolutely positively the truth. You can gain so much from this program. You just have to sit down in it for a while and you have to work with the pain and work with the struggles. They're worth it in the end. and other friends, you have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride, take what you want, and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, that was the voice of Miss Jill M that you heard at the beginning of this episode, and you are going to hear so much more from her in just a moment, but first things first, this episode, the one you're listening to right now is brought to you by Janice and Sandra and Jim and Gerhard and Anonymous. There's not actually somebody named Anonymous, but they just didn't give their name. Anyway, Sandra and Janice and Jim and Gerhard and Anonymous went to our website, SoberSpeak.com. They clicked on the donate tab and they made a contribution. Thank you so much, Janice and Sandra and Jim and Gerhard and Anonymous. This episode is for you as usual, we are going to let all the other folks listen in, but this episode is coming right out to you folks. I, John M., will be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. And let me start it out by saying, Merry Christmas, um, Happy Holidays, uh, Happy New Year. Well, when this episode is going to be released, it's not actually Happy New Year yet, but some of you may be listening to this episode after the New Year starts. So if you are listening to it during the New Year 2020, Happy New Year. And uh, 
I know, I know there are so many other things you could be doing with your time. And I, I am just honored that you come here and you listen to this podcast and the guests that I bring in. And I so appreciate you tuning in. If you just started listening and you're not sure how to subscribe to us for free, um, and you want to listen on either uh, Apple Podcasts, which is formerly known as iTunes, or you want to listen to us on Google, mm, what's it called? Google Podcasts. You can text the word sober, S O B E R, to 31996. Once again, text the word sober to 31996, and it'll get you started. I, right. I cannot believe how quickly this year has rolled by. You know, folks, it was about two years ago at this time, I decided to roll out this podcast, never thinking, never thinking it would get any sort of sea legs underneath it. I was just going to share with a few of my buddies. I thought we'd have a little bit of fun with it. But here we are chugging along a couple of years later because of y'all, because of you guys, because of you-ins. Um, Thanks for tuning in as always. And I love to get all your messages, your direct messages on Instagram, uh, your Facebook posts that you send me, uh, your, your emails that you send, your encouragement, not only for me, but for all of the speakers that I bring on this podcast. And, and, you know, you guys even encourage the people that you listen to during feedback time, listener feedback time. And, Oh, it is just quite a community that we have going here. My life is richer because of you. And that is very heartfelt. I have taken a little bit of time this week to reflect on the year that just passed. And I have tried to envision how I can improve on my spiritual life, how I can improve on the podcast um, my actual work, my vocation, uh, my family life. I, I think it says something. In fact, I know it says something in the big book in step 10. I hope I have this right. But uh, it says something about carrying the vision of God's will into all of my activities. And I've taken a little bit of time here this week to try to do that. Uh, and it's been a, a wonderful exercise. You know, and first and foremost, when I look back over the year, I made it through sober, one day at a time, by the grace of God. All right, so I want to read you something to begin with that I got out of our uh, secret Facebook group. And this is from uh, Jim S. He posted this in there. After listening to our Brenda J. Sober Speak Live event, it's a, a couple of episodes back. I think it's episode number 109, if I'm not mistaken. He said this in the secret Facebook group. He said, I got so much out of the talk from Brenda J this week. And then he kind of summed it up. He said, especially her comments about surrender, compassion, and spiritual sandpaper. Here are some comments that really spoke to me. Surrender. Every meeting is about surrender. When somebody asks what the topic is, I say it is surrender. And then she said, I don't work the steps to keep sober. 
I don't go to meetings to keep sober. Nothing I can do will keep me sober. I do these things because in doing them, I surrender to God and God keeps me sober. Well put. She also said regarding compassion, compassion is being able to look at another person and see enough of myself in them to love them and to care about them. And then she said about spiritual sandpaper, those people we don't like in meetings, oh, I think everyone can relate to that unless you're brand, brand new. Anyway, those people we don't like in meetings, those people we are tired of hearing from in meetings, they are like spiritual sandpaper rubbing my rough edges off. They are God talking to me saying, lean in and listen, you need to hear it again. And then he said, so much wisdom and love in this talk from Brenda J. Thank you, Brenda J. Thank you, John M. for Sober Speak and putting this live event in the podcast lineup. Merry Christmas, everybody. Jim S. Well, Merry Christmas. Right back at you, Ms. Jim S., Mr. Jim S. And thank you for taking out some bullet points and summarizing a lot of what, or a little, I should say, of what Brenda talked about on that evening. It was an absolutely incredible evening. All right, folks, if you haven't joined in on the super secret Facebook group, as my friend Dave in there calls it, send me your uh, email address associated with your Facebook account to John, J-O-H-N, at soberspeak.com. You know what? We have in there a ton of amazing like-minded friends of Bill W. Al-Anon and other 12-step programs, and it's absolutely free. There's no charge. Just come on in and uh, fellowship along with us. If you want to follow me on Instagram, I would absolutely love it. I am at Soberspeak, all one word, and I do read all of my direct messages, and I would love to hear from you. If you hadn't had a chance, share this episode or another episode uh, with a friend or a a family member, whoever you think may benefit from this, it may be just what they need at this time. And I would love to quote, hear from you in air quotes. And that means if you want to send me a voice memo, go to your phone and email it to me at john, J-O-H-N, soberspeak.com. And I'll even play it on the podcast if it is uh, PG rated, you know what I mean? Uh, or if you don't want to do that through your phone, go to the contact us page on the website, www.soberspeak.com. And when you click on the contact us page, you will see a little microphone on the right side of the page that says send voicemail. And guess what will happen if you click on that uh, little send voicemail thing? Yes, it will send a voicemail magically. Anyway, now on to Ms. Jill and We are calling this episode Clear Away the Wreckage. Jill is from Al-Anon. I'm so glad she came in here. I promised to get more Al-Anon on in 2019, and I did. And I want to continue that trend in 2020 because I know that we have so many Al-Anon listeners because I hear from them all the time, and I absolutely love it. Jill has three kids and a husband, and she's going to talk about how they all play a role in recovery. Recovery is a family matter. 
uh, and she talks exactly, she talks about what exactly that means. And she also refers to how sometimes, you know, it doesn't always work the first time in recovery. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Miss Jill in, and I will have some listener feedback at the end of this episode. Oh, and one more thing. I will be playing an incredibly beautiful rendition of Auld Lang Syne at the end of this episode. Okay, everybody. So today we are sitting here with Jill. And Jill is a member of Al-Anon. So Jill, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and I guess give listeners an idea how long you've been in the Al-Anon program. Very good. Well, I started working with Al-Anon about two years ago, and I have been in a step study working that um, program ever since. I go to the Georgetown meeting on Sunday mornings from 11 to 12, and that's an integral part of what I do. Georgetown meeting. I've been to the, I used to attend Georgetown. I love that Fantastic meeting. Right. And so you go to on, on, on Sunday morning and in a specifically geared toward the steps of 10, 11, and 12, That's correct? correct. Great. And do you go there by yourself or do you go there with others? I actually go with my family. Okay. Your entire, well, when you say your family, well, why don't you explain who? Okay. So that would be my husband and generally two of my sons, two of my three sons. Uh, my oldest, Zachary, uh, usually does not attend with us, but my middle son, Harrison, who is 17, and my youngest son, who is Aaron, and he is 14. Uh, Zachary is 20 and he's moved out of the house and is kind of self-sufficient and doing his own thing. So when he does attend, we're glad to have him there. Great. Okay. So I, um, I know that you brought, by the way, we were laughing about it a little bit beforehand. A lot of times when I interview the AAs, they just kind of come in here and sit down, but, uh, (laughs) This is a kind of stereotypical. I probably shouldn't go this way. Someone's going to be angry about it. But hey, you have three books and a couple of notepads, and you have you were well prepared, yeah. which I absolutely um, love. Yeah, sixteen pages of notes. It's kind of crazy, but <laughs> there you go. The perfectionist and. In me is just coming out in this interview right now. Oh, that's great. Well, you know how it is. I always tell people we say a little prayer on the beginning of this thing, and we don't know exactly where it's going to go. I never do. Uh, And I can tell you so many people come out of here uh, after making a recording go, oh, man, I forgot to say this, or oh, man, I forgot to say that. And, you know, myself included, even when I'm doing intros and outros and all that kind of stuff. So. I told you that I was going to ask you to maybe pick out something from your various readings that you have here and maybe uh, focus in on one for now and what means a lot to you and what you want to kick this off with. I would have to say probably that basic self-care is good for everybody that is around me. When I'm not taking care of myself, I'm not taking care of anybody. I just hurt other people when I don't take care of myself. Can you give an example of that and what you mean by that and how that has come, um, you know, how that has manifested itself in your life? I think when my schedule gets out of control 
and I don't take time to exercise or eat properly or just have my time with God in the morning, I absolutely try to control everything around me because I feel out of control. All right. So let's go back in your history a little bit here. Where did you grow up? Did you grow up in the Dallas area? I did not. I actually grew up in Midland, Michigan. So long way from here. And uh, my dad worked for Dow Chemical for many, many years. And I was adopted when I was three days old. And Yes. Have you found, I've been watching all these uh, things on TV lately about people finding their birth families and stuff. Sure. Uh, Did you get to experience that? I did, actually. Uh, Half of my adoptive biological family, maybe is the best way to say that I found. Um, After many, many years, it was a closed adoption. So really, there was no way for anybody to contact anybody. All the records were sealed. And when my birth mother discovered that she had breast cancer, she decided to reach out to the only person that she knew. And that was someone back where I had grown up as a baby uh, outside of Massachusetts, Boston, Massachusetts, somewhere. And um, she thought she knew who had adopted me and went directly to her. Well, it turned out to be the pastor's wife of the church where my parents were married. And she ended up contacting my mother, who then contacted me, and said, we've got some medical information from your birth mother, and she would like to speak to you. What do you think? Wow. So... um There was contact for a while, and then things seemed to be getting a little too personal, and I pulled away for a couple of years, and then... Hold on a second. When you say too personal, what what does that mean? Um, There was this time where I really felt like I had to protect my mom, because my when I say my mom, I mean the woman who raised me. The adoptive one. The adoptive one. And I felt like my birth mom was trying to almost swoop in and become the grandma in the situation. And I just really had a very strong emotional reaction. I was pregnant at the time. It was near Mother's Day. And I I just told her I needed to cut contact again. And that went on for about two more years. And then I got a phone call out of the blue one day. And she said, the cancer's metastasized. And I don't have much time left. And I said, knowing the answer is there anything I can do for you? And she said, yeah, I'd like you to come and visit. So my husband and I flew up to Illinois, and we met on Valentine's Day of that year. It was 2009, and uh, just had a lovely, lovely time. It felt very at home with my family on that side. I met my older half-brother. I met my younger half-sister and found out I had a second half-brother. And my birth mother had gotten married about three weeks after I had been adopted out, and they were married 35 years after that. Wow. And she passed away about six months later, and I was blessed to go to the funeral and meet my last sibling that I hadn't met the first time. So Wow. Yeah. Very interesting. So, okay, now let's kind of, I'm going to switch gears here a little bit because, okay. of, you know, kind of the focus of the podcast, 12 steps, alcoholism, recovery, yep. and all that sort Absolutely. of stuff. Did you find out anything about your birth mom and any sort of, was there alcoholism on that side of the family tree? 
There were definitely mental health issues. There were some learning differences uh, manifested in dyslexia. Um, there, there were some pretty insane things that happened on that side that really had to do with mental health, um, with my grandmother in particular, but didn't find anything else out about alcoholism or drug use. What about your, your family that you grew up in? Now that's where I needed Al-Anon. Um, my dad, most definitely being a German and growing up in a very German home, we embraced drinking. And that was just something that happened all the time. Did you have those big mugs oh, with the yes. big things the on the steins. top of the steins? Thank you very much. <laughs> and all the decorations yes. all over them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm familiar with those. Um, Dad didn't really favor beer all that much, but we did have them around. And I imagine they probably were something that was brought over because my dad was the first generation here in America. So. Well, he was first generation. Yeah. So did he have the German accent? No, my my grandmother was the one that still kind of had it, but um, my grandfather had died when my dad was 19, so I never had the opportunity to know him, but I imagine it was thick on that side, too. Did he talk like Dr. Doofenshmirtz on a Phineas and Ferb? <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. That's I a do great kind reference. of strange things every <laughs> once in a while. All right. So, uh, all right. So, so you needed Al-Anon when you were younger. So, yeah. kind of talk to me about that. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I had kind of the classic setup. I had the dad who was an alcoholic and the mom who enabled him. And God bless them both. They did the very best that they could. But they came from, dad came from his background where drinking was perfectly acceptable and that's how you dealt with issues was you just drank. And then mom came from a very much enabling type family. They constantly were looking for somebody to take care of on that side of the family. And she found him. She did. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so did you have any other brothers and sisters? I have a younger brother. He's about four years younger than I am, and he was also adopted. Does he see... I'm always curious about this, because mm-hmm. when sometimes you have siblings who grow up in a household, and they see things in a completely different way. So did he? does he perceive the same things that you perceived in terms of alcoholism? For a lot of years, I didn't know the answer to that. I actually learned the answer to that on a... a quick family trip about six months ago? And the answer is yes, he did. And he does. And uh, I think he has his own struggles in some ways with alcohol. Okay. All right. So you're growing up in this alcoholic home uh, with an enabler. Um, Obviously, you got out of that house at some point. Did you Mm -hmm. like go to college? Or I mean, when did you start to break away from the you know, just the the dependency as far as, as, uh, you know, being a kid? Uh, Well, I'd love to say I went to college and broke away from it, but that would not be true because I I drug my own issue from high school into college, and that's uh, a boyfriend that I took from one place to the next, if you will. And I developed because I felt like I needed somebody to love me, and he said he did. Uh, his actions didn't end up showing it in the end, but because he said he did, I kind of drug him with me and ended up getting my heart completely broken and stomped into, and it was a pretty bad situation, quite You frankly. want to talk about that a little? Um, you know, 
Yes, I actually think I do. I longed for love that my dad didn't know how to give, and I found it with this guy. And through a series of me experimenting with my own alcohol and drug things in late high school and early college, um, ended up putting myself in a position where I was raped uh, by this man. And uh, it was really, really difficult. It took me years to process that it wasn't my fault, that he didn't love me the way that I thought he did, and to untangle myself from all of that. I just wasn't healthy enough to understand what love really was. And because I thought I'd found it, I just put myself in a really bad position. (laughs) So... Thanks for sharing that. Thanks for being vulnerable. I, I know there's going to be a lot of uh, women that can relate to that, I'm yeah, sure. I'm sadly, I know you're right. Okay, so let's go a little further. When did, uh, did you get out of a, when did you get out of a relationship with that guy? I mean, how long did, did that take? And when, wh- what was the next phase of your life like is really what I'm going to. Okay, so I... It took me a long time to untangle from him. It took a lot of heartbreak. Um, you would think somebody would want to run away from that situation, but I, the best way I know how to describe it, and I'm sure someone on this podcast, listening to this podcast, will relate, is I had lost so much to him, and I thought that I could salvage what I thought we had. And so I would leave that situation and then realize that it was it was really like a drug for me. I would go back to it and then I'd feel ashamed because how could I let him do that to me again? How why would I want to let him do that to me again? And um that went that went on probably for about 3 or 4 years. And unfortunately, there were some victims along the way that were boyfriends in there, and um, they got their heart hurt because of my actions, too. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what happened. And it, when I finally untangled from him, I found myself um, rejecting someone who I knew was going to ask me to marry him. And tangling myself up with somebody who was emotionally unavailable, who um, was just an easy out for me. Um, I loved him, and he's a great guy. It was just not a good fit. We ended up divorced a couple of years into the marriage because I had not I had not dealt with anything I had done. I had not dealt with anything that had been done to me. I found out later in my first year of doing my step study, I didn't even really understand how it felt to feel. I couldn't identify my own emotions. I had two emotions. I was either happy and nice, or I was angry. And I discovered there's a lot of stuff in between those two. That's right. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, um, you know, lots, lots of baggage that led me down the path of hurting a lot of people along the way. Okay, so you had some baggage, obviously. Mm-hmm. You're kind of moving along. You got into a marriage, a bad marriage. Mm-hmm. You ended up divorcing. Mm-hmm. Any kids come out of that? No, no. I And I have said, I've even, my, my husband, Mike, I've told Mike before, my ex-husband came back a couple of years after our divorce and asked if we could try again. And I was in yet another bad relationship I thought was good at that time. And that was my excuse for not going back. But I've told Mike that had there been kids, I probably would have stuck it out um, because I wouldn't have wanted to do that to a child, even though, you know, that would be a little nonsensical in my baggage laden life to try to raise a child. But that's how I felt about it. Um, I would have tried to stick it out. All right, so now you are moving on. You're out of the marriage, uh, the first marriage. Did you even think about recovery at this point, or is that more after you had a family and we're dealing with your children, so to speak? Definitely after I had a family. Okay, yeah. so when did you get, What? where year did you get married, approximately, the second time? The second time, uh, 1997. Okay, and that's to Mike? Correct. Mm-hmm. So you're married to Mike in 1997. Mm-hmm. First of all, were you tentative about going into that, considering no. your bad experience? No. Um, Mike is an upstanding, wonderful, caring, compassionate man. And even though I was still battling myself, believing that somebody as good as him could actually find me worthy... I had just enough self-esteem to realize that this was a good decision. Mm -hmm. And he and I talked and talked and talked, and I bared my soul to him, and he knew all the ugly. And so as a result, I thought, well, if he can handle all of that, surely, surely something good can come out of this. We went on our first date on my 30th birthday, and we were engaged about three months later. And had it not been for his sister already having a wedding planned at the beginning of the following year, we would have gotten married almost immediately. But I had enough sense to know that you don't cross your sister-in-law that way. (laughs) And so we waited until November of that same year. So his parents ended up with two weddings in one year, which was interesting for them. So you started having little kiddos, three boys, Mm -hmm. right? Three boys. And uh, you went through that. So when did the, I guess, drugs and alcohol start to enter the picture in your life? Well, I guess your kids' lives, right? Right, right. So, um, you know, I, I think that Mike and I were fairly typical. Mike really didn't drink much. He remembers getting really intoxicated for the first time in college. And I had started my career with drinking back in ninth grade. Um, so I, I just kind of drank all the way through stopping only when I was pregnant or breastfeeding. And um, so we just kind of plotted along. We were raising the kids. I would drink wine in the evening sometimes. If I wanted to, we'd go out, we'd drink, but, you know, always aware that you're going to have somebody's going to have to drive home. So, there really wasn't any abuse. 
and the kids didn't grow up seeing that. What ended up happening was um, my kids all, let me back up just a little bit. My kids all have a different learning difference or a different combination of learning differences. So they've all gone to the same school to help them with their learning differences. And, and when, just so I understand the, the term sure. learning differences, mm-hmm. are you talking about learning like challenges like ADD and things of that nature? ADD, dyslexia, dysgraphia, those types of things would qualify. And so we lived near a school. And when we discovered that my middle son needed this kind of intervention, we immediately enrolled him here in that school. That really wasn't the beginning of the problems necessarily, but that kind of gives you a an idea of, you know, a very sheltered environment that they were growing up in. And um my oldest and middle were best of friends. And about eighth grade, my middle son started rebelling and having arguments with my husband that were impacting the entire family. And it catapulted me back to growing up in a family with an alcoholic who responded very similarly. And I started to really resent the way that he was treating our son. But at the same time, I was resenting the way that my son was treating my husband. And in the background, our middle son, Harrison, was slowly backing away from his best friend, Zach, and was um, falling into a place of real loneliness. And he was offered marijuana one day at a friend's house as a way to kind of quote connect. And he decided to try it. And that took him down the path of two years of behind our backs, experimenting with uh, marijuana and alcohol. And the, the apex of everything was when he took the highest dosage of Xanax that you can take and went on a 28 hour rage where, um, he ended up in a doctor's office who we thought he would fall asleep after that, but then ended up very publicly going into a, a location where around lunchtime on a Saturday afternoon, it was apparent that he was extremely high. Um, he um, didn't come down off of it until we had gone to the ER And at that point, we were dismissed and told that there was nothing they could do because he wasn't homicidal or suicidal, but that obviously he needed some intervention. And that was a Friday night into a Saturday evening. And on Monday morning, my husband and son got on an airplane and flew to Utah, where he stayed for 59 days out in the wilderness with the program and learned all about what it's like to be an addict and all of that, it, um, we were, to say that we were unaware for two years is not an understatement. Um, so many things were changing in the house. There was everything that was happening in our minds made logical sense that this was, this is just how boys are. The arguing with my husband from my oldest and then my youngest or my middle, um, Harrison just responding in similar ways. And, their behavior almost mimicked each other. In in fact, one of them shoplifted in the same week that the other did, and we found out the same week that they had both done it. Mm-hmm. It was just crazy. So we we just thought we'd gotten dealt a bad 
hand. We just have tough boys to raise. We didn't ever think drugs would be involved. Okay, let me do a little break here and we'll get right back to this. We'll be continuing our conversation with Jill in just a moment. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the World Wide Web at www.soberspeak.com. There you can also find the donate button on our website if you wish to use it, if and only if the Spirit moves you to use it. Please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you, the Listener, Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Jill. All right. So what year was this when uh, uh, Harrison went to uh, treatment? So that's where I have to admit that my timelines are very blurry. That's I know right. it was his, he began using in his eighth grade year and um, he went to treatment the summer leading up to his 10th grade year. Okay. So how many years ago? I mean, just approximately, is that like 2015 um, or so? Yeah. Right in that area? Around, that sounds about right. Okay. It, it's, it's a few years ago now. It's, yeah. Okay. A couple so, of years ago. So he goes to the, treatment uh, i don't know if you call it a facility out in the wilderness right, right? he comes back mm-hmm. what's he like when he comes back oh we had our boy back it was amazing um what we didn't know was everything that had to happen as a family from then on out um we thought okay whoop sent away for 60 days almost he's coming home everything's fresh and new we're great And then all of a sudden, we started to learn that as a family, we had to recover. And that this wasn't just contingent on him doing his work. It was contingent on us doing ours. And that there were lots and lots and lots of things we didn't even know existed that we needed to participate in, such as the Georgetown meeting. Um, We realized that we needed to be in a Tuesday night group with other parents. And we realized we needed to work on our own recovery, um, that our family needed therapy. I mean, the list was exhausting. And the first few weeks were exhausting because, of course, Harrison was still unable to drive. And so every appointment he had to go to with his therapist, we were taking him and then we were waiting for him. And that was multiple times a week. And then he would need to go to meetings. So we'd drive him to those. And it it was a very exhausting time. What about the other two boys during this time? You know, it, it honestly is such a blur. They went to the family therapy with us. And the downbeat of the family therapy was... There was blame to go all the way around. Nobody was immune from having a part in this, that we had all taken our little roles, that desperately what everybody wanted to happen was everything to go back to the way things were. But the way things were revolved around my husband and my son fighting. And that's where the power center was, was Mm. with my oldest son. And when we started to take control back from my oldest son, all of a sudden there was peace. And so that that desire to get back to what you call homeostasis, where things are out of order, when you take that back in control, 
all of a sudden you realize this is amazing. But we didn't know that's what was going on. It took therapy to get us there. Uh, the youngest, I would say, his name is Aaron. Um, Aaron, just like a third child does, and most of the times that you have more than two, he just kind of hang, hangs with all of it. Um, he goes to Georgetown with us. He listens. He He doesn't have a lot to say about it. So I'm sure that later on in life, he'll have a lot to say right. about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, I, I'm curious if you could dive in a little bit further on the roles. I, I wasn't really thinking about that, and I think this would be very educational to the listeners in mm-hmm. that what what you mentioned there is that there was there was a power struggle and the epicenter of that was basically between the the oldest son and the dad right 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 and so what how how did that how, explain that dynamic to me a little bit more i'm i'm a, i'm i'm not real educated and i'm just i'm just trying to figure out what's going on there so i was pretty much the classic enabler i took that role Mike went in and tried to solve all the problems. He tried to fight the battle against Zach. And Zach wanted to be at the center of everything. He wanted the power in the family. And um, Aaron... Does Zach realize this? Does he buy into this as well? Well, I don't know that he necessarily buys into it today. I think he understands that the power has been taken away from him, but I don't know that he ever perceived that he had the power. Okay, so that that's a phrase that that, that caught my attention when you're going through this. The mm-hmm. power was taken away from him. Right. What, what does that mean? What does that look like? We stopped yelling at him and stopped arguing with him and stopped allowing him to run the family. Ah, oh, so there are, if there are people listening out there <laughs> and they're thinking, how do I take the power right. away from somebody who's being disruptive, so to speak? Yes. It's it, not by being mano a mano and going back at them. No. It's more... You have to back off. You have to back off. So how did he react when you started to back off from him? I think it took him by surprise originally, because instead of a angry, confrontational type thing, the responses were coming at him more even-keeled and almost allowing him to have what he wanted, but not really. And so a prime example of that would be if he threatened to do something he knew we wouldn't want to do, our traditional reaction would be to yell and tell him, no, you can't do that. And this is the reason why. But our new reaction was, I understand that that's what you want to do. That's not acceptable. And you may not do that. And if you choose to do that, this is what is going to happen. Right. And so... Then the consequences started to happen, and we lived up to what we said we were going to do. And instead of it just being this continuous over and over and over again thing, we now were on this path of, this is what's going to happen, now it's happened, your play. Okay, so so this is with the older son. Mm-hmm. And did he have drug and alcohol issues as well? He He does. And he 
his way of dealing with that is um, denial. He wants to blame his his depression on the drugs when it's really the drugs that are the cause oh, depression. Gotcha. So yeah. Okay, so this goes back into so so working on family dynamics mm-hmm. here, right? And this is a little bit above my head, but I'm hanging in there best I can. Okay. So we go back to Harrison now, who's the middle child, right. who's really the one dealing with the, uh, I guess the. Um, I, I mean, you can see his drug and alcohol problem, right? Absolutely. So I'm wondering, how does that tie back into his drug and alcohol problem? It was his way of dealing with the loneliness of losing that relationship gotcha. with his brother. And at the same time, he had been heavily entrenched in a Taekwondo competition. He was an inter- he was about to become an international fighter when he fell into all of this. And the the family of kids he competed with slowly but surely started moving in other directions. And he was left as pretty much the only one on that competition team after having, uh, I think, eight or nine other kids with him for about seven years. Mm. And so he fell into a really, he, he felt lonely. And the drugs were what helped him to not feel so lonely, even though the irony of that is, of course, you're no more, you're, you're the most alone when you're doing drugs because you're so isolated and so into yourself. Now we've got from about four or five years ago, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Up until now. So yeah. kind of give me a thumbnail sketch of what has happened in recovery, any sort of ups and downs that you have experienced there. What 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 stands out for you? Okay. So I think what stands out for me is that we went down the path of recovery believing that it's kind of a one and done. Nobody gave us the red flag that, by the way, relapses happen, and they might happen to you. And despite the fact that we sat in that Tuesday parent meeting every week faithfully and listened to people talking about their kids going out, we were having such a positive experience that we didn't, we, I guess we kind of were stupid enough to think that we were immune. Mm-hmm. Um, and so about this time last year, 16 months into his recovery, something shifted in a Georgetown meeting. And instead of announcing his sobriety date that he was very proud of, he said, I'm sober today. And it immediately caught my attention. And I said, after the meeting on our way out, what was that all about? Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Somebody else used that phrase, so I decided to use it. Well, my guard was up at that point, but for every time that I saw something that I looked, I, I looked at and thought, that doesn't look like recovery to me. There was something that he would say that would kind of calm me down. And so when he started having these reactions where he was spitting up junk, which was classic from when he was doing drugs the first time, um, he said, what's in the air this year? It must be something really bad because I've never had allergies before like this. Mm. And so he was he was slowly getting... Well, not slowly. He jumped right back in where he left off. He chose a different way of um, medicating. 
He was doing dabs, which uh, most people don't know what those are, so I'll just give a brief education. So you can vape marijuana oil. It's about 9,000 times more potent than just smoking weed like people did back in the 70s. It's vaporless, it's odorless, and it's colorless. So your ability to figure out that somebody is doing a dab is much more difficult and he was doing it under our noses. Despite the fact that we saw these signs, he kind of helped us calm down about them. Despite the fact that we had torn his room apart, we had torn his car apart. We had done everything we could think of to do. There was no figuring this one out. And unfortunately, the one thing that we could have done that would have outed him, we stopped drug testing him. Mm-hmm. And so he had a solid... Oh, five or six months where he was hoodwinking us and um, the relapse was discovered the day before my husband's birthday at the end of April. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, it was because there was Visine in the washing machine that fell out when I opened it. And I knew immediately. There was no doubt in my mind. In fact, I turned around. He was sitting on the other side of the kitchen And I turned around and I threw the bottle at him. I was so angry because I knew, I just knew. And he was like, what the heck, mom? And I picked it up and I threw it again because I missed him and it hit him. And he immediately hung his head, put his hands around his face because he knew I knew. And so long story short, he relapsed. We sent him to a program about... A month later, he finished up his junior year at our house under what could only be described as house arrest. And uh, he spent the last five months out in Louisiana in a um, program in between rehab and the real world, if you will. Um, It's designed for kids who aren't quite ready to go home need a little bit more, but they're not old enough to go to a sober living house. And so he's home again. In fact, yesterday was a week. Um, We had one day with him home over the summer. And in that one day, despite the fact that he had perched his phone of all of these negative influences, uh, he was seen out and social media outed him, and he got a phone call from someone looking to hit him up. So we realized that Dallas wasn't the right place for him to stay. Mm-hmm. So yesterday, my husband went and rented an apartment, and he and my son are going to be moving in about a week to another location so that he can continue his recovery and really get set up so that when he goes to college in that same town, that he's ready. He has a solid, solid recovery underneath him. As you know, before we talked about this, I talked about, uh, you know, Maria introducing us. Right. Hello, Maria. Thank you for... uh, (laughs) Yes, thank you, Maria. We love you. For uh, introducing me to Jill and... Uh, you know, I, I I told you that I sometimes don't like to go on what I call blind dates with these sober speaks because <laughs> right. I never know exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> um, this is a case to where I'm I'm uh, I'm very pleased. That pleased is maybe not the word. I know that you and your family are going through difficulties, but this is real life. Yeah, 
And this is what happens with drugs and alcohol uh, and addiction mm -hmm. um, all the time. Yeah. And I think people need to hear this story. I, I so appreciate you being vulnerable. Um, I'm sure there are many more years and there's going to be many more twists and turns that go with this. Right. But why don't you go ahead and describe to people, I guess, any sort of parting thoughts. What has Al-Anon done for you? Tell me anything you want to tell me about the 12 steps and just kind of your general outlook on life at this time, if you will. When I first started my step study a year ago, I was really going through the steps, not understanding what I was supposed to be doing. I was very angry that I even had to do this. Um, it was dredging up my entire past, which I didn't really want to face. And just so I understand, when you say you're resenting having to do it, I, I, I've heard Alan on say before, like, hey, I'm not the one with the problem right. here. Right. That was my perception. Right. That, and yeah. so that was kind of your resentment. Of, Why do I have to go through all this? Exactly. Right? Okay. Exactly. I was... I was at that point pretty happy to let the past be because I didn't see how healing the past would help the future and today. Um, so I would say that uh, sometimes it doesn't take the first time. I'm very similar to my son. His recovery is a journey. It has its ups and downs. Um, my recovery has its ups and downs as well, and it... There are times when the steps make a lot of sense, and there are times when I just wish I didn't have to be doing them. But I think that this time around, what I've gained is a really solid step one, two, and three that um, is preparing me to go back through and work through my list of issues and uh, to be able to make amends to people. I believe with all of my heart when people say, keep coming back. It works if you work it. That is absolutely positively the truth. You can gain so much from this program. You just have to sit down in it for a while and you have to work with the pain and work with the struggles, but um, they're worth it in the end. I've so much enjoyed our time. Me too. Thank you. Thanks for coming over. Appreciate it. Um, I always end it with... now. I know you got some notes here. Do we get to everything you need to get to? <laughs> we could be here for hours, we could be quite here frankly. A long time. <laughs> I always end it with uh, maybe maybe another time. That's but, right. Yeah. Maybe on part two. <laughs> that's right. I always end it with uh, page one sixty four from the big book. And by the way, Jill is very active in our secret Facebook group. I appreciate everything that you. Uh, post in there well, and thank the you. reactions that you give. And so, you know, there may be some people after listening to this that want to come in there and, uh, um, you know, contact you through the secret Facebook group. Sure. Um, so it, I, I don't want to give your last name, but it would be Jill N. Is that right? That's correct. N as in Nancy. Abandon yourself to God as you, and but once again, this is from page 164, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us 
like me and Jill, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Thanks, Jill. Thank you. Jill, and what an excellent message. Thank you for coming in here and sharing your story and your thoughts with the listeners. I know that many will benefit from that. If you want to get a message to Jill and send me an email to John, J-O-H-N, soberspeak.com, and I will be more than happy to pass that on to her. If you want to share Jill's episode with somebody, pause your device, hit that little share button, and get it over to a friend or family member. It may be just what they need for the holidays or the beginning of the year. All right, now on to a little bit of listener feedback for you. All right, so here in the secret Facebook group, I got a post from, I'm just going to call her uh, K, the initial K. And um, I thought, you know, we, we talk a lot about wins on this um uh, podcasts and you know about how well people are doing, but you know people aren't always doing well, um, and uh, it's reality. And I love that Kay had the vulnerability to post this inside the secret Facebook group, and she says having an extremely hard time this week. I'm grief struck in the worst way, and anxiety is at an all time high. I haven't had to take anything to calm me down in over six months, but had to last night and feeling kind of bad about that. I didn't drink. I just went to sleep because of an anxiety medication. I lost my partner on February 14th, Valentine's Day of 2019 to cancer. And this time last year, we were just finding out about his diagnosis I'm moving on to a new chapter of my life just after Christmas by starting a new job, which I and I have benefits and I can finally access some mental health care to deal with some of my issues. I'm trying to focus on thriving this year instead of surviving. But at the worst times, I just think about drinking and how much I miss being merry and out with my friends. I understand that, Kay. On top of having to seclude myself because I'm so emotionally fragile, I just want the holidays to be over so I can get back to a regular scheduled program. Stressed, anxious, tired, sad, but I'm still sober. 129 days and counting, but F- she actually spelled out the word, the holidays. <laughs> and I, I get that, Kay. I so get that. And I know that there are going to be so many people out there that can relate to that sentiment that you just brought forth. And I thank you so much for posting that. And she got so much feedback in the secret Facebook group of well-wishers, people telling her to hang in there, you know, you're not alone, whatever the case may be. And, um, you know, the secret Facebook group is not a cure-all for everything, but it was nice to see all those people piling on with the feedback for 
support. God bless you, Kay. Gerhard writes in and he says, John, thank you for your service. I look forward to the weekly podcast. It's like having my very own weekly speaker meeting delivered to my doorstep. Well, good way to look at it. I'm kind of like a Amazon delivering something to your doorstep. Anyway, since this is a step recovery, so many of the shares are also very useful to my girlfriend. Fantastic. Hello, girlfriend of Gerhard, who is not an alcoholic, but like I, but is a CODA, is in CODA. For those of you who don't know what that is, that's Codependence Anonymous and uh, Al Anon Recovery. We often find ourselves listening together and having stimulating conversations as a result. Well, fantastic. Merry Christmas and a happy and healthy. New Year. P.S. Please add me to the Super Secret Facebook group. Thank you. And he gives me his email address. Best regards, Gerhard T. Well, Gerhard, thanks for writing in. I appreciate it. And once again, give your gir- your girlfriend a, a nod for me there. Chris writes in and Chris says, Hi, John. Thanks for the podcast. The first episode I listened to was with Jenny L. as the speaker. She has a wonderful message, and I truly appreciated her honesty and vulnerability. I'm just over a year sober. I go to at least five meetings a week. I have a sponsor who has gracefully walked me through the steps. I am currently working on writing and asking for amends of those I have harmed. Sounds like you're uh, on the right uh, on a good path to recovery there, Chris. I would love to be part of the secret Facebook group. My email is such. I will continue to listen to this podcast. Hello from New Hampshire. Hello from New Hampshire, Miss Chris. And then she puts um, hashtag just say yes and hashtag let go or be dragged. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. That's great, Chris. Uh, and as you know, I passed your comments on uh, to Ms. Jenny. Thank you for writing in. I know she appreciated that feedback. Billy D writes in. Billy D. I mean, it's just the initial D, but wasn't there like a, or is there like a, an actor named Billy D, like D-E-E? I believe there is, but I don't think this is the same guy, but who knows? Anyway, hi, John. I'm now in the secret Facebook group. Thanks. I really, I feel like I already know you. Well, thank you, Billy D. And I feel like I know you too. In fact, for all of us who are in this recovery boat, and especially for me, those who walk into an Alcoholics Anonymous room, I feel like I know them as well and so much about them without even having met them. I found your podcast last week as I was searching for something positive to listen to on my morning walk. Two Ricky R episodes got me hooked. Oh, that's great. And I'm now in the middle of Gary K talking about steps one and two. Uh, Just so you know, he's talking about Ricky R. He has uh, two or three episodes on here. And Gary K has about four or five episodes. But nonetheless, he says, I live in the Atlanta area and attended two local AA group. And I attend two local AA groups two to three times a week. Um, I tried getting sober on my own too many times to count. 
Man, we can relate to that. And AA is the only thing that ever worked for me. I'm 63 and I started drinking when I was 16. I'm not a one chip or I'm not a one white chip wonder, unquote. And that's central to my story. After a DUI in 2016, I first started attending AA in early 2017. I was there almost every day, always on my big pink cloud for over six months. Then out of nowhere, I took a drink one night while my wife and I were at the beach on a vacation. She had gone to the, to park the car while I went uh, to put us on the restaurant wait list. Suddenly, without any forethought, I realized there was a bar two steps away and my wife was at least five minutes away. Boom, he says, exclamation point. Two quick shots and I was back in business. Cunning, baffling, and powerful is almost an understatement. You're right there, Mr. Billy D. Five months later, being self-employed, I had relocated my office to a spare bedroom in my home because there were so many more places to hide the Svetka bottles. You know, I don't think I ever drank Svetka, but I got a feeling it's a vodka. Nonetheless, Svetka. I love saying that word. Svetka, the the Svetka bottles. Uh, Anyway, he says, I was deeper into alcohol than I ever had been. My wife and my wife and some very persistent friends kept poking me to come back to AA. But finally, on that Saturday morning, two Decembers ago, I realized for myself that I had to go back if I wanted to live. That whole experience taught me that step one is the absolute truth for me. There is no gray area. Well put, Billy D. I am powerless over alcohol, and every day I make a life or death decision. I hate that I put myself and my family through so much pain, but I think that's what it took for me to finally understand the faux alcohol I am dealing with. Thanks again, and I can't wait to get involved in the secret Facebook group, Billy D. Thanks for writing in, Billy. I really appreciate it, and I know there will be many people that can relate to that. Craig writes in, and Craig says, well, it's titled Jenny L's episode. Here's a second comment on Jenny L's episode. If you didn't listen to Jenny L yet, you may want to go back and listen to that. It's, I don't know, two or three back from this one. And he says, John, I wanted to tell you how much Jenny uh, Jenny's talk impacted me. I am a member of Al-Anon and I am living with active drinking with my spouse. I grew up in an alcoholic home as did my spouse. It was not until I came to Al-Anon 18 months ago and began to work the steps that I came to understand how much I was affected by the disease of alcoholism. I did not know how emotionally frozen I was growing up as an adult child of alcoholics. I was very full of denial and trying so hard to be in control of everything and everybody. About 12 years ago, my wife became pregnant unexpectedly. We already had three kids, seven and under, trying to be the perfect father, husband, son, etc., and being all things to all people 
in quotes, or excuse me, in parentheses, except myself, as I came last and was not worthy of any self-care or self-love, um, parentheses. Is that, a, is that how you phrase that, in parentheses? Anyway, you get the idea. The idea of a fourth child terrified and overwhelmed me. I come from a family of four kids and my parents' marriage ended in divorce with such emotional wreckage for my siblings and me. My wife was also very unsure about a fourth child. At least that is what I told myself. And we agreed that she would end that pregnancy. It has been a decision that has left a deep emotional wound for us and our marriage. My wife's drinking is getting worse, and the emotional chaos in our home is significant. When I tell her how much drinking is affecting the whole family, she blames me and my failures in our marriage for why she drinks. One of those failures includes the abortion. I recognize my role in that decision, and it was part of my fifth step with my sponsor. However, I also understand I did not cause her alcoholism, cannot cure it, and I cannot control it. Through reading the AA Big Book and listening to many, many AA online open talks and podcasts like Sober Speak, I have been able to develop my understanding and love for my spouse and her disease. I am now able to practice detachment with love one day at a time. I loved hearing Jenny L. talk about what her sponsor suggested on her ninth step for her unborn children. I am going to make that part of my ninth step as well. Thank you, John, and thank you for your service in this podcast, Craig. Craig, thanks for writing in, Um, and I think it's very fitting that we're reading your feedback um, on the back end of Jill N's episode. And uh, God bless you and God bless your family, Mr. Craig. I appreciate it. Zach writes in and Zach says, hi, John, I am an addict. My name is Zach. At present, I am living in a long-term sober living home for men in early recovery. Howard's story, Howard B. is who he's talking about, was my first experience with sober speak, and I believe it, it was meant to be. I would be most grateful to have you pass along my contact info, info to Howard. I am compelled to reach out and say thanks. There are many similarities in our story, learning how to make and nurture healthy relationships for what feels like the first time ever. I am so glad that I found you. Well, I'm glad you found us too, Zach, and I'm glad that I found you. Keeping me anyway, says, I'm so glad that I found you keeping me company during the long drives to see my daughter for Christmas. Keep up the good works. Have a blessed holiday, and I hope to hear from you soon. Zach G. and Dixon Illinois, uh, or Illinois, excuse me. Anyway, I got Zach in contact with Mr. Howard and got out of the middle and let them to communicate. And, uh, I'm so glad that you wrote in, um, some feedback regarding one of the, uh, one, excuse me, I'm starting to lose my <laughs> train of thought here. And, uh, one of the uh, speakers, I really do appreciate it, Zach. 
Kristen writes in and she says, I am from Wanamingo, Minnesota. Wanamingo. Yeah, Wanamingo. Is that like a wannabe from Wanamingo? I'm so sorry I did that, Kristen. Anyway, Wanamingo, Minnesota. You know, I was in a uh, a place called Mononymy one time, Mononymy Falls, and it's up in Wisconsin. Some of you may know that place. And I walked into a little uh, restaurant there, and I said, I had seen the the uh, sign uh, uh, out on the highway saying Mononymy Falls. And I said, hey, how do you pronounce this, this place that I'm in? And they said, uh, McDonald's? I said, no, 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 I'm sorry. I got off track with a little joke there. But nonetheless, Kristen writes... <laughs> Kristen writes in and she says, hi, I am from Wanamingo, Minnesota. Uh, I have been sober for four years. I have a job that requires I be alone a lot with an exclamation point. So one day while it was in my head, I searched up recovery podcast and you John Ann came up. I listen all the time. It helps me so much. Well, thank you so much for writing in, Miss Kristen. I do appreciate it. All right, John W. writes in and he says, Hi, John. I really enjoy your podcast and was listening to one from June with your friend John W. and the principles of AA. Very interesting. At the end of the podcast, you mentioned a listener in Auckland, New Zealand, which I might add you pronounced well. (laughs) Well, thank you. I hope I'm pronouncing it the same way again. I don't remember how I pronounced it, but hopefully it is Auckland. Uh, Anyway, her name was Michelle, and I'm wondering about coming into AA and it made me email you. I am currently two and a half years sober and know a lot of strong female members, and I wish I could get to contact her if she hasn't been contacted already. I realize it was six months ago, so probably uh, had been. Anyway, keep up the great service and have a wonderful, wonderful sober Christmas. Christmas, John. Well, thank you, John. And uh, I have reached out to her and let her know if she wants to get in contact with you and some of those strong women members members that you know uh, that I will get you to in contact with each other. Cade writes in on the Instagram and he says, thank you for keeping me going each day after, uh, during work, exclamation point. I love the podcast, a little thumbs up and a little heart. Well, thank you for listening while you're at work. I appreciate it, Kate. Tyler writes in also on the Instagram and he says, much love for this podcast. I'm fresh on my journey, have, a, have lots to lose uh, in my life as most do. That's correct, Tyler. Not willing to let alcohol win the bottle battle. This podcast is going to help me stay on the path. Thanks again. Well, thank you for writing in, Tyler. I appreciate it. And you keep on that path, my friend. Johnny writes in also on the Instagram and he said, listening to Gary K while stuck in Chicago traffic. <laughs> Three exclamation points. All my best wishes, Johnny. And Johnny sent me a a picture with him 
pointing at the camera on while he's stuck in traffic there in Chicago. <laughs> I guess he's pointing at me. I don't know. But I thank you so much for sending in that picture. And I'm glad we can help keep you uh, entertained or keep your mind in the right place while you're stuck in traffic in Chicago. And I have been in that traffic many times over, Mr. Johnny, and I completely get it. All right, everybody. Now it is time to tune your ears in to the musical talent of Miss Wendy Child singing and playing the song All Lang Sign. Happy New Year, everybody. Should old acquaintance be Should old acquaintance be forgot? 